So Paul uh, has been leading or encouraging, charging uh, the Philippians with this idea that there is a joy that is possible uh, only for those in Christ Jesus through their relationship with Christ Jesus. And it's a joy that is, is possible to have, like a sturdy, ruddy joy in the midst of really difficult circumstances. Paul's in jail at the time when he's writing this. Remember, they're suffering as a church as well. And he's saying there's this joy that can be had in Christ even in the middle of these really difficult circumstances. And he says here in this passage um, that Christians can and should be different uh, than the rest of the world in this area of our lives, in the area of joy. He says there that, that you can shine like stars among the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life, that, that we're to be children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, blameless and pure. We should be different, right? I thought that would actually be a very interesting um, summer camp t-shirt for a Christian camp, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. It sounds like a Mennonite camp that I grew up in, but what is he saying there? He's saying we should be different, right? We should shine like stars. We should be people of integrity, right? A bright beacon of a different life, of a different joy. And even in our relationships with one another, there's different relationships than those who aren't in Christ, right? And how he goes about pointing at that in this particular passage, he says one area, the one area that he chooses to really put his finger on here is, is one of the areas we should be really different is in this area of grumbling and arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, right? That if, if we have grumbling and arguing as a mark of our lives, if we're grumblers or complainers or critics, arguers, disputers in our relationships, that's actually a mark of that we've departed from our true identity in Christ, the integrity of who we are in him. If we're marked as those, I think one commentator said that, if we're marked by those who are rise and wine, not rise and shine, we were meant to shine, right? So that's what we're gonna talk about this morning is this. Are you a grumbler? Are you an arguer, right? Let me, let me give you some, some other words, because you may initially say, like, I don't think I'm a grumbler, right? Like, I grew up in the Midwest, and I, I actually believe, if you know people from the Midwest, you'll, Midwestern people will be nodding with me at this point. Midwestern people almost consider complaining a spiritual gift. Like, we have this unique way that, that it's almost like we don't know who we are unless we have something to complain about, right? So I cooked in the kettle of Midwestern complaining, but here's some other words, some other ways that you can maybe say, I think grumbling might be an issue. Are you cynical? Do you have a critical spirit, right? Do you have a negative or kind of pessimistic or feel fearful outlook on everything? Are you sarcastic? Most people don't think of sarcasm as being connected to grumbling, but in a lot of ways it's a way we hide our grumbling right? Are you always taking on the martyr role, right? Are you a blamer? Are you kind of a nagging perfectionist? Nothing's ever good enough, right? Are you a know-it-all? 
any of those things, I think if you really sit in those, you'll realize that all of those are, are part of the mark of a, of a grumbling spirit, right? And so are you a grumbler? That's what we're gonna talk about this morning. And I know uh, if you're a married person, I'd encourage you to stop thinking about your spouse right now or one of your good friends. Focus on you here, right? How are you in this area? Are you a grumbler? And, and do you even know why? What's, what's underneath all of that grumbling? So the three things we're gonna talk about this morning are this, and they come out of this passage and hopefully this will all make some sense. First one is this, we're all working out some salvation. Second point, Jesus' salvation working in us. And then thirdly, the key to killing complaining, okay? We're all working out some salvation, Jesus' salvation working in us, and the key to killing complaining. So the first thing, we are all working out some salvation. We're all working it out every single day. Uh, it's, if you're worried about the fact that you've missed your workout, you don't ever miss this workout. You're always on the treadmill of working out your salvation. What he says there in verse 12, dear friends, you've, you have always obeyed not only in my present, but how much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Work out your salvation, Paul says, with fear and trembling. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on those two words, but fear and trembling, we kind of hear those as negative, but really it's, it's work out the salvation that you have in Christ with, with the tremendous awe that it should have because you are loved and you are saved and you are secure by the Jesus that Paul just described in verses five through 11. This humble, self-emptying, not using his position for his own advantage, glorious servant Jesus. Work that out, that you're loved and secure and saved by him. It should create tremendous awe in us. So work out that salvation with fear and trembling because when you do, it works something in you, a different will and different actions in order to fulfill God's purposes. We're all working out some salvation daily. And I would, I would argue this, that people um, who believe in God are doing that and people who don't even believe God exists are doing that every single day. Every single one of us, every single day is wrestling with this question. We're working this question out. What's gonna save me? What's gonna deliver the life that I desire and that I long for? What's gonna make that chronic sense of not enough, nothing's enough, What's gonna make that go away? What's gonna deal with that? Maybe if I can get the house that I want, I mean, houses, people are spending insane amounts of money on houses in Nashville right now. It doesn't matter what it costs, just throw more money at it. Maybe if I get the house that I want then, right? That will save me, right? Maybe if I get the money or the financial security I believe that I need, right? What if I get the recognition that I crave, that I so deeply desire? What if I get that relationship with whoever that I believe I need or desire? Then I'll rejoice, then I'll be saved, right? I can't rejoice. I can't have joy until I get it. My joy is dependent on that thing or that outcome saving me. Whatever we believe 
will save us, will be our salvation. We're all working that out every single day. And if we, if we look at our grumbling and our complaining, oftentimes it's a window into helping us see what we really believe will save us. What's gonna do it? If you study what you complain about, what you grumble about, what you argue over, you oftentimes will discover where your hope and your joy ultimately hangs. It depends on it. Because hope and fear, right? Hope and fear are two sides of the same coin. If I fear not having something that I believe I have to have, that's the thing that's gonna save me, right? Then my hope and my joy is all dependent on having that thing. I've gotta have it. We're all working out some salvation, either our salvation in Christ and what he's done for us, or our salvation in we believe we can get that from something else. It reminded me of uh, a Golden Globes award speech, uh, or actually it was an intro speech that Jim Carrey gave a handful of years back where he was, I think, uh, he was giving, you know, I'm gonna read the award for best comedy that year. And as he's walking out, you know, the announcers are saying like, you know, now, you know, announcing this, and he says, two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And so Jim Carrey steps up to the microphone and in the way that only Jim Carrey can, he says, he says this, he says, thank you. He says, I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And he says, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, <laughs> going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, he said, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir, I, I dream about being three-time <laughs> Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. Because then I'd be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And he paused and then he said this, but these are important, these awards. He went on to say this, I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspectives, these awards are huge. What's he saying? He, he's putting his finger on the nerve in front of, in front of the crowd of the elites and saying, we're all here in this room trying to work out some salvation. Maybe if I can just get that third golden globe, right? Maybe if I can get that, even if I know, like he said, it ultimately won't fulfill me. I can't stop the quest. We're all working out some salvation. And most of mine, when I was 
praying about this and meditating on this, most of my grumbling or my arguing with others or inside of me, my restlessness, like would you even believe that restlessness could be a form of grumbling? My restlessness comes from my life. It's, it's not going the way that I want it to go, right? It's not going the way that I believe it should go. God owes me, right? I demand that it goes and I'm fighting tooth and nail to make it go. I'm grumbling and arguing because my life isn't happening the way I want it to happen. And just like Jim Carrey, I'm caught up. We're all fighting for some golden globe, right? Something that's gonna say, now you shine like a star, right? It's one of the dangers of our little online curated lives, right? Where we're all sitting at the dinner table, staring at our phones, voyeuring in on one another's filtered existences, which creates this constant undercurrent. It's a constant award show. We're constantly at the Golden Globes a constant undercurrent of opportunity for me to grumble, to compare myself, to have discontent. Because most of my grumbling and complaining does that. It has some comparison component to it. I see others having the life that I want. I see the success in other people's lives. That success is the success I want. I see the affirmation that other people are getting. That's the affirmation I want. They have the confidence that I want. They have the life, the beauty that I want. And I'm grieved that I don't have it. I grumble. Much of our grumbling, if you pay attention to it, is really us trying to work out our salvation. Whatever I'm grumbling and arguing about is what I believe functionally in that moment, this is what's gonna save me. And we have to understand that. This, this issue of grumbling and complaining is that serious. In the Midwest, it's just a, it's just a part of life. It's like breathing. Grumbling is like breathing, right? And God's saying, no, it's serious. Complaining is serious. And you have to understand that, that when you're grumbling and you're complaining, you're trying to work out your salvation. So we're all ultimately trying to work out some salvation. Let's talk about the second thing. What salvation is Jesus trying to work into us? Right? Jesus' salvation working itself into us which really looks like my life of grumbling now gets transformed into a life of gratitude. It gives way, I stop being a grumbler and I, it gives way to gratitude, right? So I've said this, you study your grumbling, it will show you functionally what you believe will save you. But if you flip it around and you let your grumbling study you, you have to think about this sentence for a second. You let your grumbling study you you let it be a spotlight into your soul, it will show you what you need to be saved from. Grumbling shows us what we believe will save us, but it also, if you let it study you, it will show you what you ultimately need saved from. From finding joy in the wrong salvation, just a circumstantial change, to actually being restored 
like David said in Psalm 51, I believe, restored to the joy of my salvation that I have in Christ. You see, biblically, whoa, I almost couldn't say that word, biblically, grumbling and complaining, if you look at those words in the original languages and in the whole scope of scripture, it goes way deeper than just the verbal expressions of a surface frustration or annoyance, right? When you look at the whole use of these words in the Greek and in the Hebrew, grumbling and complaining go way deeper than just my verbal expressions of surface frustration or annoyances. It's always understood as a deep heart issue, as sin. Grumbling and complaining, it's not a bad habit, right? Grumbling and complaining are understood in scripture from front to back as rebellion, that word, rebellion against the Lord. When I'm grumbling and when I'm complaining, I'm grumbling against God, right? So it's not just words. I'm rebelling against the Lord. That's what Psalm 78 says about the Israelites' sin in the wilderness. It was the sin of rebellion. And what it was is it expressed itself through their grumbling and complaining that God get working on their terms. Life isn't happening the way we want it to happen. And so we're grumbling and complaining against you, God. We're rebelling against you. Grumbling and complaining, they're not just words. It's not just a bad habit. But as the proverb says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Grumbling and complaining are words from a heart of rebellion. That was the chief thing that Israel and that we struggle with that we're guilty of and that grumbling and complaining points to. Remember in the desert, when the Israelites were grumbling and complaining against God, their grumbling and complaining came before their idolatry, right? It was like a precursor to them turning to other gods, right? It was, it was the hors d'oeuvres of ultimate idolatry. Exodus 16, two says this, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve. Listen to the accusing here, the blaming. You have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. We would rather go back to Egypt and to the slavery of Pharaoh because at least there we got the, the kind of food that was better than this manna. I would rather go back to slavery than trust God in this moment of unknown. And when the people complained against Moses, Moses understood this. He knew that they weren't ultimately complaining to him they were complaining against the Lord. Moses knew that so well that in Numbers 11, he just said, just kill me. 
Like, you go ahead and wipe me out because they're going to kill me, right? They were complaining against the Lord and where God had them. Accusing God, you've just brought us out here to die. You just got to think about this for a second. Because <laughs> Israel, at this moment in Exodus 16, just a few chapters earlier, Israel had just passed through the Red Sea, right? You remember that miracle, right? Where their backs are against the wall and Pharaoh's army is charging on them and Moses is like, you know, like in Braveheart, like hold, hold, right? Everybody's just waiting. What's gonna happen? And he miraculously opens the sea and they cross. He saves them, he delivers them from Pharaoh. And this, this grumbling, this complaining, right? This rebellion against the Lord, this is just days later. They're grumbling in unbelief and questioning God's ability to deliver and provide and even his very heart towards them. You just brought us out here to kill us. Because they're hungry. I mean, this is the ultimate Snickers moment, right? You're not yourself when you're hungry. How can they go from that? I was thinking about this. How can you go from the Red Sea to this just a little bit later? Well, how is this? because the salvation that they needed worked into them. The deliverance that they needed wasn't ultimately from Egypt. They didn't need just a circumstantial deliverance. That wasn't what they needed saved from. They needed saved from being hopeless complainers, hopeless accusers, hopeless blamers, because that's what sin makes us into, and it has since the garden. You remember after they ate the fruit and God questioned them, Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent, right? Not my fault. What's going on out here? It's somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. Grumbling always sees the primary problem of life is outside of me. And so my my grumbling focuses on other people or it blames God, but it never stops and asks this question. Maybe why I'm grumbling is something that's broken and off inside of me. Maybe I'm why I'm grumbling. Maybe it's because of my sin. I know I've been saved from sin's wages and, and death and I have eternal life. Jesus has triumphed over that. But maybe what I'm dealing with in my grumbling is what Paul talks about in Romans 7, which is sin's lingering effects in my flesh. Sin is still battling in my flesh. Maybe why I'm grumbling is something off inside of me, not outside of me. And yet, for the Israelites and for us, in the face of all of their grumbling, God is committed to their greatest good, right? He says there, it is God who works in you to will and act according to fulfill his good purpose. What was his good purpose, right? Well, Ezekiel tells us if, if you're ever gonna drop the grumbling and drop the complaining, you're gonna actually need a new heart and a new spirit. I'm gonna have to give that to you in order for you to follow and obey my decrees, right? I'm gonna have to give you a new will and a new way through a new heart and through a new spirit. 
so that you can obey like he's talking here. You've always obeyed, not just in my presence, but how much more in my absence. You know, like you want your kids, I want my kids to actually just not obey me when I'm around, right? I want them to actually do what I've asked them to do when I'm not around. But I don't want them to do that just simply out of fear. I want them to do that out of love and out of the reality that they understand my heart for them. And this is what's best for them, right? I don't just want a behavioral change. I want a heart change in my kids. And even in the middle of all of their grumbling, God is saying, I'm committed to your greatest good and that's that heart change that's gonna be needed. And so in Exodus 34, he says, guess what? In the middle of all of your grumbling, I'm compassionate and I'm a gracious God and I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. Why is he compassionate and gracious? Because he knows I can't just tell you what to do and you'll get it and you'll do it. You need a new heart because the slavery that you're in is deeper than the slavery that you were in in Egypt. You're enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to a rebellious heart, one that grumbles and complains by nature, not by circumstance. One that grumbles and complains by nature not by circumstance, and I'm gonna have to come change your nature. I'm gonna have to give you a new heart and a new spirit. That's the salvation I'm trying to work in you. And he's saying, participate with that. Work out that salvation that Jesus is working in you. Come to him, look at him, look at his heart for you. Believe what Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you, he is going to bring that work to completion and he is bringing that work to completion. He's sanctifying your life and he's ridding it of grumbling and complaining and disputes and arguing because he's trying to take us past grumbling into what I think we see here in Paul, which is this groaning, Right? Worship and longing for the Lord and for his glory. It's not that it's not hard, but I'm not grumbling anymore. I'm groaning for the right things. Grumbling is just a cheap substitute for groaning. Grumbling oftentimes is I don't understand my heart. Like a little kid, I'm just kind of whining and complaining when that grumbling is actually a, a buried groan, right? It's a buried groan that's saying, Life isn't the way that it should be. And I'm a part of that. I'm not the way I should be because everything's been broken by sin, right? But because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, because of the salvation he's working in you, because of Christ, it's actually possible, like 1 Thessalonians says, to now rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks, not grumble, Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul's been worked in. He's had the salvation of Jesus work deep into his heart and deep into his mind. He's been transformed from where Israel was at where they would just say, if only we died in the desert at the hand of the Lord or back in Egypt, right? From a life of if only, which is as I ultimately know what's best. If only is a grumble. 
He's been transformed from an if-only life to an even-if life. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Our life goes from this if-only, 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 grumbling life to an even-if life. Even if, because my life is the Lord's and because when I look at Jesus, I know I can trust and rejoice in his plan. Paul's not grumbling, he's groaning. And he's groaning from a place of gratitude. His grumbling has given way to gratitude and rejoicing, saying this, even if my circumstance is difficult, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, which the drink offering was just an element of worship to God. It's literally like, this is probably sacrilegious, but pouring one out for your homie, right? <laughs> Pour one out, acknowledging he who was poured out for you. Even if all of this difficulty ends in my death, even if it can be joyous worship unto the Lord, because my grumbling, my grumbling has been silenced by gratitude. It has been transformed. And now I can be poured out because Jesus Christ was emptied for me. So we're all working out our salvation every single day. And Jesus is trying to work a salvation into us. So just really practical, the last thing, how do I work out my salvation? How do I participate with that? We know that grumbling tells me I'm, I'm doing it in certain areas in the wrong way. How do, I, how do I work it out in the right way? What's the key? This is the third thing to killing complaining. Well, how we move past grumbling and a grumbling life to a groaning life, to a life of, of gratitude, a life of worship, not whining, right? He says there, you will shine among them like stars as you hold firmly to the word of life. As you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, if, if we remember right before this passage, Paul in, in about six verses has just come out of holding up in the most succinct and powerful form. It was like 120 proof gospel Jesus, right? Holding up the majesty the glory, the, the theologians call this the super exaltation of Christ. In verses five through 11, holding up the glory of the self-emptying, humble, loving, cross-embracing Jesus. The Jesus who didn't complain, even though, because he was sinless, he could have complained. He had reason to complain, but he didn't. And instead, because of the joy set before him, us, he went to the cross. Paul is saying the key to killing complaining is holding on to that word of life. When we read that, I just want you to hear me say this. Holding on to the word of life isn't holding on to some philosophy. It's not holding on to some theology about Jesus. It's not holding on to some set of teaching or some system of religious life. It's holding on to someone, not something. We're holding on to Jesus because Jesus is the word of life is what scripture says. In scripture, these words are his words. And when you hold on to that word of life, you're taking hold of that, like Philippians 3 says, taking hold of that 
for which Christ took hold of you. What does that say? When you grab a hold of it, you realize I'm already being grabbed a hold of. You're letting yourself be held by him. He's saying, hold on to the word of life because in holding on to it, you will re-experiencing who is holding on to you. Take hold of it. And when you take hold of it, you realize you're being held. And you're gonna need to be held because this life is hard, right? Jesus promised us in scripture. We think of the promises of God all about eternity and streets of gold and all this, and that's true. But he also promised us this in scripture, in this life, you will have trouble. Things will be hard. You will have things you can grumble about. But what? Take heart. Take my heart. I've overcome the world. We overcome the grumbling by taking his heart. I have to be held while I hold on to the word of life. And it frees me to a life of gratitude, not grumbling. When we look to Jesus, when we look specifically to the cross, that's where the glorious, not grumbling, not complaining, self-emptying love of Jesus is seen. And when you look at Jesus, let me just tell you this, I don't know if you've ever pressure washed anything. Pressure washing can be totally addictive. But it's solid underneath, right? But it looks just gross and dirty. When you pressure wash and all of a sudden you see it, it's like, whoa, that's what it looks like underneath all that. When we come to Jesus, it's literally like a pressure washer cleaning off the grime of my gripe. Uncovering what I have to be grateful for, not what I grumble about. Uncovering what is true about me and what's true about him. And when that pressure washer of the gospel happens, I'm set free now to worship and not whine. I'm set free to even be poured out for him and for other people with joy because he's been poured out for me. Let me pray. Lord, oh man, Lord, I... This is just so convicting this week. Um, so much of my life still can be marked by grumbling and complaining. And thank you, Lord, uh, for the grace of seeing that um, where I'm doing that uh, is ultimately me trying to maybe functionally believe that something else can deliver on what my heart most deeply desires more than you. Thank you for that grace. Thank you uh, for revealing that, showing that. I pray, Lord, that you would transform us into people uh, like our brother Paul, um, who, had have, who have had their grumbling give way to gratitude, and that you would wash our hearts clean, that we would see the truth of what we have to be grateful for, and that you'd set us free uh, to be those who uh, live and love with joy shining uh, like stars in the sky because that's what you've made us um, as we hold on to you, the word of life. In your name.